Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. The city regulator criticizes banks over savings rates, but stops short of banning so-called teaser rates. Equity release is at its highest level since 2007. And how safe are your savings and investments from cyber attacks? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford and Judith Evans, plus a special studio guest, David Mann of price comparison site USwitch. Cash savings rates are rubbish and they've been rubbish for just about as long as most people can remember. Savings rates are low all around the world because the response of central bankers to the financial crisis was to cut base rates to very low levels. In the UK, there's the added complication of the government's funding for lending scheme, which provides cheap credit to banks. As a result of that, there is less need for them to compete for savers' deposits. And they're also low because of a quirk of the British banking system, teaser rates, These are where banks offer a headline-grabbing initial rate, which after six months or a year reverts to something much, much lower. The banks know that there is enormous customer inertia around accounts. Most customers forget about the expiry of the introductory rate and remain stuck on a miserable rate for months or even years. Teaser rates formed a big part of a regulatory probe into the savings account market. The Financial Conduct Authority, which regulates banks and financial services, began looking at savings rates last year because it thought the market wasn't working well for consumers. This week it published its report, and joining me to discuss the contents is David Mann, Head of Money at price comparison website USwitch. David, welcome to The Money Show. I guess the really big news here is that the FCA, um, after much deliberation, decided not to ban these uh, so-called teaser rates. Why did it do that? Well, the teaser rates are a great way to get the average person thinking about trying to save. The bigger question, obviously, is what happens after the teaser rate. And that goes to some of the findings that they had and some of the recommendations, which is that the the banks and the different savings providers need to be much more proactive in notifying customers around when the teaser period comes to an end. So people can be much more active in managing their savings and getting the most out of them ultimately. Do you think that will work, though? I mean, I got a letter the other day saying that the the interest rates on one of my children's savings accounts actually had been reduced, and I sort of put it in a in a filing cabinet. Thought I'll deal with that as and when, and uh, and that was before Christmas. And guess what? It's still sitting there now. 
Yeah, and it's not a surprise. I think it's two things, ultimately. It's One, it's the notification, but then it's also making the process of doing something about it easier, right? So if you're with one bank and the teaser period is coming to an end, the process of switching your savings is more difficult than switching potentially your cash ISA or even your current account. So I think it's not just about notifying, but it's putting a structure in place like they've done with current accounts to make that process simpler, more straightforward for the average person so they can take advantage of the additional or newer teaser rates that are out there when their their initial period comes to an end. And there was also something, wasn't there, about simplifying product ranges. What's that about? Well, right now it's very difficult for the average person to understand and compare sort of an apples-to-apples comparison between different providers, different savings products. What would be really great from a from a consumer perspective is to sort of streamline how banks talk about savings accounts and savings products, and then ultimately also sort of the information behind it. If possible, it would be great to see them go towards what they do within credit cards, which is a summary box. So it allows people to specifically see what are, if there's any fees, what the fees are, compare them, apple, again, apples to apples, and same with the savings rates, whether it's the intro versus the ongoing rate. And I mean, there is one bank in particular, um, NatWest, that has made a big thing of, of, of scrapping teaser rates and saying, well, we're just going to offer new customers the same rates as uh, existing customers. Is there any sign that others might be tempted to go down the same road? Or do you think that teaser rates are just too important, a, a sort of commercial weapon to be abandoned altogether? I think they're too important. I mean, it's interesting, obviously, to see them doing this, but it's not the standard that we see within the marketplace. And we don't see any signs that the teaser rate or the intro rate is going to be changing anytime soon. We've mentioned that uh, that savings rates in general are very poor and have been poor for some time, but that was changed for certain section of the population uh, last week when the pensioner bonds were launched, uh, offering much better rates of interest for the over 65s. There's some evidence that younger people are a bit resentful uh, about those and that they're a bit of a perk for, for the older generation. Has the industry responded in any way to that by perhaps increasing rates on cash ices that, that all savers can access? Not in a significant enough way. I mean, ultimately, it's great that there's these these new type of savings products for, for pensioners, but what about the younger people trying to save for ultimately buying a house and for their retirement? But there's nothing there that really addresses that, right? So there may be some banks that take some action here and there to, to bump up their, their cash ISA rates or their, their, uh, their saving, easy access saving account rates, but it's nothing significant, and ultimately the rates are still too low. And finally, David, uh, obviously after this uh, report, the onus really is still on the individual saver um, to to sort of shop around and get a better rate. Um, What are your sort of top tips for savers? How should they make sure that their money keeps on earning the best rate that's possible? Well, I think there's a couple of things they can do. I mean, the first and most important thing is taking control and being an active manager of your money understanding when the intro rate ends, what your go-to rate is. But then it's also going online, understanding what the different uh, savings, easy access savings, even current accounts, because current accounts tend to have higher rates now than savings accounts. So understanding what's available within the marketplace, uh, understanding if there's any fees, but then ultimately then actually seeing and taking advantage of all those offers that are out there. Thank you very much, David. At least we can be thankful we're not Swiss. Some banks there are now imposing negative interest rates on large cash balances. Don't forget that each week in FT Money, we publish the best savings rates for a variety of account types, making it easy to compare both the headline terms and the small print. 
Still to come on the show, the never-ending behind-the-scenes battle to keep your pensions and investments out of the hands of cyber criminals. First, though, let's have a look at equity release. Figures out this week show that equity release volumes have exceeded their previous peak and are at record levels. Equity release is where homeowners borrow money against the value of their house, but don't pay interest or repay the capital until such time as the house is sold. That usually happens when the person dies or goes into care. Proponents of equity release say it gives people who would struggle to get a conventional repayment mortgage a way of extracting value from their home while continuing to live in it. They say it can help fund later life challenges such as residential care. And they add that a no negative equity guarantee means that borrowers can be certain they'll never end up owing more than the value of their house. But critics say it's a colossally expensive form of borrowing that is often marketed as a way to pay for consumer goods like dream holidays or new cars, rather than for those more serious financial challenges. James Pickford has been looking at the debate. James, why is um, equity release on the up? Why is it suddenly becoming more popular? Well, the main reason is that there's more equity in houses. Um, The latest uh, figures from the government uh, statistics agency, the ONS, uh, show that house prices rose by 10% last year, 15% in London. And actually, for some parts of the country, particularly London and the South East, house prices have been rising for the last decade. And in fact, the housing market has been cooling off um, for the past year. For most people, the way to release equity in their house is to is to conventionally remortgage. And in fact, the, the remortgage market is, is far bigger. But there are reasons why equity release in terms of these specialist products is becoming more popular. There were new rules on mortgage affordability uh, called MMR, uh, which, which were uh, introduced last year. And these have made lenders um, quite nervous about lending into retirement as they won't have enough confidence or certainty about what income will be available uh, to allow them to assess whether the borrower can afford the loan. Most lenders, in fact, insist that loans be paid off by the time the borrower reaches 70 or 75. So for older people, the equity release product is something that they have to turn to. There's another reason too, which is that as pensions are freed up, the pensions reforms come into effect in April, there's this feeling that some people will choose all sorts of ways to make money from their pension pots. And uh, annuities, the rates of take have been falling. And annuities were one of the main ways in which lenders would assess affordability for housing. And as annuity income falls, that's another reason that they they can't give mm. someone. That's because an annuity income was reliable. Annuity and, income was guaranteed for life. So equity release um, is is an, is an alternative to that. This is an industry that had basically quite a bad reputation in the sort of 1990s with a lot of people ending up uh, owing more to their equity release provider than their house was was actually worth. Um, The industry says it has cleaned up all that, it has a new code of practice. What's changed? I mean, do those claims hold water? Yeah, so I mean, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, there were a series of mis-selling scandals um, over equity release and, in fact, sort of property-related endowment scandals. Um, And it was often older people who were sort of persuaded to realise 
catalyse some of the growth in their property by taking out mortgages on the basis that they would receive perhaps half the value of the mortgage and then the other half would be invested in something like um, investment bonds or so forth. And of course, those investments uh, failed to come up with the income. The other thing that happened was that house prices collapsed and so people ended up uh, with all their equity eaten up by the interest payments. Uh, What has happened since is that the industry is better regulated. The FCA, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, is responsible for for its regulation. And there are various requirements now in place. Uh, The chief one is uh, the no negative equity guarantee, which means that however much uh, interest you rack up, that has to stop. That has to be capped at the value of the house. And that includes agents and solicitors' fees when you sell the property. The other thing is that interest rates on lifetime mortgages, which is one of the common equity release products, uh, must be fixed. Or if they do vary, there must be an upper limit for the whole term of the loan. So it protects you from interest rate yeah, rises. Yeah, it protects you from, from big interest rate rises. And the other thing is that if you sign up to um, an equity release product through the Equity Release Council, which is the trade body, all of the providers there uh, have signed up to their principles, which show that they must be qualified to advise you on on taking out that mortgage. So there are fewer cowboys around in the market these days. Thank you very much. On to our final item for today. We've all joked about those emails from colonels in the Nigerian army asking us to send them our bank details because we've won a prize or inherited a fortune. Many of us have wised up to the fact that banks don't generally send out emails requesting security details to their customers, and we've learnt to ignore those messages. But that doesn't mean we're safe from fraudsters, scammers and cyber criminals. The financial services industry collectively spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year on cyber security, but the crooks are often one step ahead, attacks are getting more sophisticated, and savings and investments are prime targets. So how big a problem is cybersecurity? How resilient is your investment platform or pension provider? And what steps can you take to protect yourself from online criminals? Judith Evans has been investigating. Judith, can you give us an idea of the size of the problem? Is this sort of thing going on everywhere? It's a pretty huge problem. Um, GCHQ, the spy agency, put out a report recently saying that 8 out of 10 of the biggest British companies have suffered a serious cyber attack. That costs the UK economy tens of millions of pounds annually. On a global scale, the hacking industry is estimated to be approaching the drugs trade in terms of scale. And unfortunately, um, financial services firms are kind of on the sharp end because um, they obviously hold not only money, but also customer information. And uh, what are companies doing in response, uh, apart from spending a lot of money, obviously? There's definitely a lot of awareness of the problem in the UK at the moment. Um, The government's launched an information sharing partnership. It's going to carry out a mock cyber attack on commercial banks. The regulator has started looking at how well prepared financial companies are for cyber attacks. And there are also a number of initiatives within, say, the wealth management industry to help people share information and figure out what they should be doing. Um, However, the vibe among cyber security experts seems to be that although um, this is all great, it sort of has yet to translate into a really consistent, strong approach to the problem on the ground. So particularly some smaller firms are sort of being a bit slow to catch 
catch up with what they need to be doing. Is that partly because there hasn't been a really sort of big spectacular, there hasn't been a sort of Sony or a PlayStation hack in financial services that has that's made it onto the evening news and therefore there's perhaps a little bit of complacency there? Well, one of the interesting issues that I discovered when writing this is that although in the US there's a, a strong regime requiring companies to report hacks, there isn't really one here. So there's quite a possibility that an awful lot of big attacks are going on that we're not hearing about. In a couple of years' time, there are probably going to be new European regulations which will really strengthen the penalties for not telling authorities about attacks. And that's really likely to change the climate because we're suddenly going to start hearing about all these attacks. For example, the other week we heard that Morgan Stanley in the US had potentially been compromised. Um, 10% of its customers' details might be out there on the web. We might start hearing similar stories from Europe in a couple of years' time. For the people who are doing the uh, the cyber attacks, whether it's the sort of stereotypical geek in a garage or if it's an organised criminal gang, what's their main line of attack? Is it the institution itself or is it the is it the individual, the sort of weak point in the link? Well, I think it's a case of getting at the institution through the individual. Staff members, I think, are particularly susceptible to this um, because if hackers can take over one of their accounts, then they can sit around in the company systems without anyone noticing because they actually have a legitimate login. Um, there also is a problem with customer accounts as well, which are often very vulnerable. And they can be targeted in a number of different ways. There's purely electronic ways like setting up a Wi-Fi hotspot, getting people to log in and taking their details. There's also human ways, phone calls, um, even approaching someone in person. Um, there's a whole phenomenon known as social engineering, which is to do with how um, hackers initially persuade people to part with information that they shouldn't be. And then once um, hackers have that way in, then they can often find out a lot about the company in question and indeed other companies. So it's sort of a question of opening a small door that that leads to an awful lot, really. And finally, what can you as an individual do to sort of uh, reduce the chances of falling victim to a cyber attack? Well, this was actually one of the more encouraging areas that I looked at because while customers do remain one of the weak points in company defences, the good news is that it's quite easy to do something about it. And it does come down to that obvious thing which is having strong passwords and never ever using the same password for any kind of financial account that you use for something else but surely everybody does that don't they i have i well no i'm not going to say it i have the same password for a lot of accounts well um the advice is don't basically um it makes it incredibly easy um because hackers know that that people do this once they've got one of your passwords they'll try it on all your other accounts i spoke to one expert who had dealt with a bank where 17,000 of their customers had the password Arsenal1. So you can imagine how easy their defences were to crack. There's also, um, as well as having much stronger passwords, it's important that people check that their own antivirus software is up to date on their home machines so that viruses can't get in there and harvest information. Thanks very much, Judith. Cybersecurity is the cover feature in this weekend's FT Money. You'll find lots more detail on the points Judith has raised, plus a list of companies who are actually benefiting from increased spending on cybersecurity. Other highlights of this week's issue? Following last week's amazing volatility in the foreign exchange market, we look at the debate around currency hedged funds. Does it make sense to protect yourself against currency movements or not? With HSS, the train line and John Lang infrastructure selling shares to the public, we look at whether buying shares in IPOs generates strong returns or not. And David Stevenson looks at whether retail bonds issued by energy companies, some of which are trading at half their face value, are worth buying. 
The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, James, Judith and our special studio guest, David Mann of USwitch. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.